Hello and welcome to Session 10, a panel discussion focused on the lessons from the pandemic to fight common infections and sepsis, featuring panelists from the WHO, the European Commission, and more. The session is exquisitely moderated by Detley Ganton from Germany. Without further ado, over to you. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the session number 10 uh, of the uh, World Sepsis Congress on Global Health Threat, Sepsis, Pandemics, and Antimicrobial Resistance. You have joined us on session 10, which is Lessons Learned from the Pandemic to Find Common Infectious Diseases. My name is Detlef Ganten. As you can see in the background, I'm from the Charité in Berlin, and I'm the founder of the World Health Summit. I'm not an infection specialist. I'm very happy that we have the specialists on the panel. And uh, the structure of this panel is that everybody on the panel will present in about three minutes what he thinks is most important from his point of view uh, to contribute to the topic of, topic of this panel. And then we have a discussion with the audience. So I encourage you already now to pose your questions or to pose them while uh, you are listening. And then I will see that as a moderator. And then I interfere in the discussion with your questions. I'll be happy to uh, consider all of them if possible. Um, the first speaker is Benedetta Allegranzi. Uh, Benedetta is from the WHO Infection Prevention Control Hub in uh, Geneva, World Health Organization headquarters. Benetta Aleganzi uh, is an infectious disease specialist with diplomas in tropical medicine and hygiene from the University of United Kingdom. She has been uh, teaching at the University of Verona, one of the oldest in Europe and I think around the world. So it's a wonderful university. And she has been around the world, especially also in Burundi, in Malaysia. Now she is a member of the Faculty of Medicine of the University of Geneva. Her specialty is antimicrobial resistance, new guidelines of the uh, IPC for uh, implementation of strategies to prevent um, sepsis and, and uh, infectious diseases. And she is currently leading a uh, strategy, uh, developing a strategy for global action plan to monitor framework for the IPC and to be adopted by the uh, World Health Assembly, which will be in May this year, 24. So, Benedetta, the word is yours. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Detlev, uh, for your nice introduction. Uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everybody, wherever you are. Firstly, let me thank very much the Global Sepsis Alliance for making huge efforts to organize this year again this outstanding Congress that provides new evidence and helps us renovate our thinking about sepsis every year. Uh, sepsis is a preventable tragedy that affects people, often healthy people, while conducting their lives or when receiving healthcare for other diseases. Well-functioning integrated health systems are essential for the success of any intervention to fight against sepsis. A reflection on health systems 
also comes from recent years when we dramatically experienced that the emergence of new infectious threats can cause disruption of essential health services with consequences to the entire health system and weakening of the capacity to diagnose and treat sepsis adequately. Furthermore, I would like to note that coming through the pandemic over the past few years, member states have reiterated the huge need for infection prevention and control, including the control and management of sepsis. Anyone can be vulnerable to infections, and some are particularly at risk for acquiring infections and developing clinical complications leading to sepsis. The ultimate outcome of a patient with an infection that can potentially evolve to sepsis heavily depends on critical steps from adequate infection prevention measures to early diagnosis and appropriate clinical management and treatment. All these steps require strong and integrated health systems and services, which is the focus of my intervention. Indeed, having all systems uh, building blocks in place is critical for sepsis prevention and management. In particular, integrated service delivery, competent and adequate health workforce, appropriate and best quality medical products, vaccines and technologies for prevention, diagnosis and clinical management. And finally, well-functioning and integrated health information systems to support identification, handover and transfer of patients at risk of or affected by sepsis. The concept of universal health coverage, which is very important to WHO and uh, all members of the United Nations, is at the core of the fight against sepsis for several reasons. Firstly, access to adequate and integrated health services for all is critical to avoid occurrence of sepsis and its fatal consequences in particular at the primary healthcare settings, which frequently are the entry point for patients with infection and where sepsis signs and symptoms too often go unnotified. Secondly, the quality dimension of universal health coverage reflected in the quality of the healthcare services delivered is essential for adequate sepsis prevention, diagnosis and management. If attention is not paid to the provision of effective, safe, people-centered care at the points of where people access the health system, then the response to, se to sepsis is set up to fail. Finally, I believe that the concept of integrated service delivery must include strong engagement of community in the planning, delivery, and evaluation of the health services that serve them. Over many years, we heard insightful stories of patients with sepsis where relatives and families role in identifying signs and system, symptoms of sepsis has been paramount. The effort to address sepsis must engage and integrate communities as a proactive systematic activities 
that creates opportunities for their involvement and builds relationships across all stakeholders. WHO made available many tools and resources and is active in supporting countries in the areas I've mentioned. And therefore, I will be pleased to further provide you with details later on about this topic. Thanks a lot for your attention. Thank you, Benedetta. I have already some comments here, and one of the most important comments at the present time is to the audience. Some of the speakers will show slides, most of them don't. So everybody speaks about three to four minutes. And so if there are no slides to be seen, that's not a technical error. It's because no slides are going to be presented. And in addition to that, for the speakers, perhaps uh, you have an audience from all over the world, from Africa, South America, uh, Asia. So uh, I don't, I cannot see how many, but uh, from all parts of the world. So we have a wonderful audience. Welcome to all of you. And uh, we now come to the next speaker. And I encourage again those who listen to send me the questions and then we'll find an answer for them. So next is, uh, I have to look at the, voila, I, <laughs> I have to look at you, where you are on the screen. Vilina uh, Penelovska. Vilina uh, is uh, from the Health Security Unit of the Director General uh, Health and Food Safety Department of the European Commission in Brussels, so-called GDG Santé. Mm -hmm. And uh, she has studied uh, politics, actually, at the University of Plymouth in the United Kingdom. She has joined the uh, European Commission very early, and she was even younger than now, year 2009, and uh, worked on diverse files and various uh, parts of the European Commission, mainly in the area of health. And now she is uh, uh, very interested in, in working on antimicrobial resistance, especially covering the public health threats and aspects of European Union policies on AMR. And you, some of you may have realized the European Union has just uh, declared a uh, European global health strategy. So the European Union will become a very important member of the international efforts to uh, fight infection and other diseases. Belina. Thank you very much, Detlef, for this uh, introduction. And um, also on my turn, good morning, good afternoon and good evening to everyone who is listening. It's it's a pleasure and an honor for me to be part of this uh, sepsis congress. I am one of, I have to join you, Detlef, in saying that I'm also not an infectious disease specialist, <laughs> but it's uh, a privilege to be able to give you a bit more of the insight about what the EU has done. My, my subject of my intervention was preparing the EU to manage infections and cross-border health threats more effectively. And as was already said by Benedetta just before me, the COVID-19 pandemic, I think we can all agree, has been a massive game changer. I think not only in the health uh, community, I don't. I think we or the people who are involved in, in, in health, this was clearly, but also I think it was a game changer for everyone else. And in terms of drawing attention to and making it absolutely clear what one virus can do if we have no means to counteract it, if you remember especially the early days of the pandemic. So um, as a result of this, 
the, at, in the EU, we undertook important initiatives to, that were triggered by this pandemic to strengthen what we call our EU health security, legis, uh, health security framework. And that entails the legislation that we have for serious cross-border health rights, how that covers everything in terms of preparedness, surveillance, response to any infectious disease, including antimicrobial resistance. I'm going to come back to this in a minute. We also strengthen the mandates of two of our key agencies in the field. Those are the European Center for Disease Prevention and Control and the European Medicines Agency that have played a major role also during the pandemic. And last but not least, very importantly, we created a brand new body that did not exist at EU level. That was the equivalent of the United States BARDA. We call it HERA, the Health Emergency uh, preparedness and response authority, specifically to look into preparedness and availability and the, the role that medical countermeasures play uh, in the response. So anything from the treatment, you, you probably recall that there was no treatment against COVID, uh, to vaccines, very important countermeasure, but also everything else, including if you remember the very early, very early days when we also had shortages of things like gloves, Benedetta mentioned a very important um, uh, role of uh, infection prevention and control. I think that's another lesson that we can all learn from the pandemic, how important it became even to a point of personal infection prevention and control that people were reminded to wash their hands more often as, you know, uh, as a major, major basic measure, but still very major uh, let alone uh, infection prevention and control in, in hospitals and healthcare settings. Um, I would like to say also that the pandemic drew the attention of other parts of government more generally in terms of, let's say, finance ministers, hopefully, to the topic of health and the importance of maintaining certain capacities in health for preparedness, for response. And at EU level, that was also the case. And... Um, uh, the EU and general, I should say this perhaps to our diverse audience, does not hold much powers as such the, at EU level when it comes to the policy of health. The prerogative for action remains in the, health, in the hands of the member states of the European Union. But still, we decided to increase rather dramatically the funding that we have at EU level when it comes to health. And uh, this is with the creation of our EU for Health program, which is now over 5 billion euro, I think, altogether. And just to give you an example, in the past, it was, I think, altogether around 400 million. So that's a very sizable increase in the funding that we have for health at EU level. And last but not least, I'm trying to stick to my three minutes. There's a lot more I could say, of course, about this. But the topic of AMR, I think, and, and sepsis and healthcare-associated infections, uh, which is, of course, very uh, the topic of this Congress. Uh, the uh, the COVID nineteen, I mean, AMR has always been a priority for the for the EU, and we have had action on AMR already for over two decades, and we have the latest EU action plan predating the pandemic from twenty seventeen. But all these developments, including at international levels, with now, uh, I think you're all familiar with the ongoing negotiations on the pandemic agreement, we think all of them can be usefully harnessed also to combat AMR and healthcare-associated infections. So 
I'm very pleased to say that just minutes ago, we have also unveiled our latest uh, policy initiative on antimicrobial resistance. This is um, go, comes comes out together with our um, proposals for re revisions to the EU pharmaceutical legislation, and we are planning to uh, propose to them to the member states of the European Union that we boost our actions on AMR to have targets on AMR, so we can push and and um, even furthermore, our domestic activities on AMR, as well as, uh, as I already mentioned, on the global front, we are very keen to see AMR as, um, as a very uh, strong component of the future pandemic agreement. And as part of that, also, you know, strengthen things like steward, uh, stewardship, antimicrobial stewardship, um, infection prevention and control, and uh, also the search for new antimicrobials, which are very urgently needed. So I think I'll stop here looking at the time. Thank you very much. Happy to take any questions in the discussion. Okay. Thank you very much, Vilina. And we are, of course, very happy to hear that the uh, European Union Commission really makes major steps to improve its involvement in health, because indeed it is a national problem. It may not be known uh, all over the world. You know, the health is still... Uh, at the national level, but you have a medical doctor as a president of the commission, so we, we are looking forward to further progress. <laughs> Thank you very much. Next one on the panel is John Adabi Apia. <clears throat> uh, John is uh, a senior specialist in pediat pediatric intensive care. He is uh, a lecturer at the teaching hospital and school of medicine of the Kwane Krumer University of Science and Technology in Kumasi in Ghana. He has been um, working various parts of, of Africa, especially also in Cape Town. He is a consultant uh, of the uh, COVID-19 case management at WHO Afro. He is a clinical consultant for the Geneva team in, uh, in, for, for management also and uh, various other uh, activities which are too long to uh, elaborate here as an introduction. It has been very much involved in the Africa Sepsis Alliance. <clears throat> and uh, John is the president of the Pediatric Society of Ghana, and his fo interest focuses on sepsis and critical care training in resource-limited settings, especially in pediatrics. John, we are listening to your presentation. Thank you very much. Um, good morning, good afternoon, good evening to all our listeners. Uh, I'd like to thank the organizers of this um, program for their invitation. And um, by way of uh, my introduction, um, I'd like to take a look at um, the childhood mortality report by UNICEF, the uh, last report which was published recently. And I alluded to dramatic reduction in child and youth mortality over the last 30 years. Um, but then we still have 4.7.4 uh, million deaths uh, among children, adolescents, and then the youth uh, from preventable and treatable causes. These days, actually, we heavily on two regions, and these mainly are from resource-limited settings. That's um, Sub-Saharan Africa 
and uh, Asia. And if we look at the figures a little bit deeper, 80% of these deaths actually occur in a few countries like Nigeria, India, Pakistan, Democratic Republic of Congo and Ethiopia. Now, looking at also data from sepsis, uh, we know that almost 15 million people are afflicted with sepsis every year. And out of that, 10 to 11 million of them die. And the same stark reality is that majority of the deaths occur in resource-limited settings. But the problem with resource-limited settings is the fact that they are faced with many challenges, which is related to management of infections and then sepsis. And these include patient factors. There are distinct disease conditions, distinct pathophysiology, like HIV, anemia, sickle cell disease, which complicates patients who uh, have infections and also reduce their risk to increase their risk to infection. There are also pre-hospital factors. And these include care-seeking behavior of the um, of families. And again, these are affected by both cultural and traditional practices, which in this uh, appropriate early intervention. There's also late identification of sepsis. There's absence of emergency transport services and challenges with referral systems. All these complicate the fact that there, we don't have uh, sufficient staffing, let alone to talk about specialties in managing patients with sepsis. Sepsis is a very complicated disease when you are managing uh, to manage. There is also lack of equipment, inability to monitor, challenges with drug availability, antibiotics especially, and fake drugs coming into the system abounds. Not only that, but interventions such as blood transfusions, as we see in patients with severe anemia as a result of malaria, and oxygen is at a premium. We have diagnostic tests. Uh, we don't have diagnostic tests in identify to help identify patients with sepsis early. There are weak trial system and again, referral pathway. Lastly, to talk about access to care. If even these resources are, these are there, patients find it difficult to have access to care. In many places, there's limited access in terms of universal health, health coverage and people pay out of their pocket. And this significantly limits the ability to manage patients with sepsis. How does this sound in terms of uh, experience with the COVID pandemic? And how is it familiar with that? In any case, the pandemic has shown us that we are able to confront and implement interventions that can change the direction of undesirable situations. Looking back at what we did successfully should help translate to our approach at managing infections and sepsis. Let me list some of the interventions or approach that I find very useful. These include leadership and coordination. Currently, there's virtually very little leadership across resource-limited settings when it comes to infection and then also especially sepsis management. 
And as a result, there's a haversat approach to management, even within the same country, even within the same facility. There are challenges, as I initiate, uh, list, uh, in, uh, made about, there are challenges with diagnostics, diagnostics available at the point of care to identify patients early. We know that early identification, early intervention actually reduces mortality. Access to clinical care and tools for management uh, for sepsis. And most importantly in this area, prevention with vaccines, inadequate and not available in all areas in resource-limited settings. We mustn't forget the fact that we need to engage the community to be able to bring infection and sepsis under control. And lastly, to touch on partnerships that we need to build to strengthen management of sepsis at the point where patients need it most. And I think these and many more are legacies from the pandemic that going forward, we can adopt, adapt and contextualize to resource limited settings to alter the cost of sepsis. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sean. Um, next speaker will be a neighbor of mine, uh, but we never met Wiltrud, did we? <laughs> so Wiltrud is working so. uh, at the Charité, at the in intensive care unit, and she is specialized in telemedicine. And she uses this methodology to, to monitor the quality of, of sepsis interventions and uh, intensive care unit activities. You will tell us details about it. And um, she's also a member of the German Sepsis Foundation. And uh, so beyond the charity, she's very much involved in promoting uh, the, uh, the knowledge quality and uh, also the uh, kind of equipment for intensive care. In the re region at the Charité, which is necessary, I guess, <laughs> and, and of course, beyond. Wiltrud, it's your turn. Yeah, thank you, Dedle, for the very kind introduction. Indeed, we are neighbors. Um, good day, good morning, good afternoon, good evening to everyone who's listening in. Um, I come to you today actually as a clinician, um, as an intensivist, and I'm very happy to, on behalf of my whole team here at the Telemedical ICU at the Charité, talk about some of our experience that we've made in the field of telemedicine in intensive care. Before the pandemic, during the pandemic, and now ongoing afterwards. Um, terminology in the field of e-health, I think, can sometimes be a little bit confusing, so I'm trying to be very clear here in our case, the terms telemedicine and teleconsultations that I'm going to use, they describe uh, a hospital-based approach that we use, where we from our department of intensive care, from our telemedical ICU, have built up a network of partners of other intensive care units, initially in Germany and then later on also uh, internationally, um, who are all connected to us here at what we it's called the tele-ICU through a secure technology, um, including an audio-video connection and a shared patient documentation system that can actually be taken to the bedside on the respective ICUs. And basically what we do every day here is virtually meet with these colleagues in our partner units at the bedside, sometimes for scheduled rounds, sometimes on demand, and we provide consultation, second opinion, 
and also facilitate other expert consultations with other disciplines. And I have to say, especially with the colleagues from uh, the infectious diseases, we have indeed uh, established a very close collaboration um, in telemedicine in the meantime, um, and have become a, like an actual interdisciplinary team at the tele-ICU. And this is because indeed a huge portion of the consultations um, uh, evolve around severe infection, sepsis management, and the rational use of antibiotics, which is uh, a huge topic, regardless of the context, be it in Germany or internationally. Uh, the tele-ICU initially uh, was established way before the COVID-19 pandemic as uh, part of a trial, a national trial investigating the role of telemedicine for you know, improving the quality of critical care in smaller and medium-sized hospitals in Germany. But um, when the COVID-19 pandemic hit in 2020, it was actually the, the Robert Koch Institute, the German Public Health Institute, that asked us to become a partner to them in supporting the clinical management of COVID-19 also in other countries. And so there were new partnerships established um, in the countries of Uzbekistan, in South Africa, in Montenegro, and actually later on also in Uganda. And yeah, really, you know, this is very short time. So all of our wonderful partnerships, they have all come with valuable lessons. And right now, I just want to point out three of the big ones that um, I think are very important. And um, this is first, uh, telemedicine, in my view, always needs to be thought as a tool and as a tool that needs to be designed context specific. And the implementation of telemedicine should always build up from local needs and local setting and local infrastructure. And this goes for the choice of technology, and there's a lot of technology around, as well as for the relevant medical care standards. There just is no one-size-fits-all um, in telemedicine, as in so many other fields. The next one is, in our experience, telemedicine can be a great tool also for knowledge exchange and also for capacity building. And um, it can be used in this way also to reach a much wider professional audience. And indeed, in, in our international partnerships, especially in the international partnerships, we have used telemedicine um, for basic or sometimes more specialized training in intensive care. And of course, also in sepsis management. And also, uh, we uh, work, we have conveyed relevant evidence-based information, more specialized trainings, for example, around the rational use of antibiotics. As I said, in almost all settings, um, that was identified as a big challenge um, during the pandemic. Um, and the third and last uh, thing is that, uh, and this is a lesson that maybe we especially learned in the Montenegro project in the Balkan region, but we see a lot of potential around this for all of our partnerships. We've found it crucial to put a focus on strengthening the role of the nursing staff in critical care. Um, and we found that telemedicine can actually be an incredible tool for doing that. Um, we always had nurses in our team of experts on our side, and we were always looking also for local champions in the nursing teams um, of the partners. Um, and we feel it worthwhile to put a continued focus in this for, you know, the continued efforts in the existing partner countries, but also for new projects. Also, and especially with regards to prevention of healthcare-associated infections and early detection of sepsis. Um, 
So and we will be trying to put a focus on this in the future. So yes, moving forward, all of these and some more lessons are now informing several sustained activities in the partner countries, but also new projects. And yes, I'm very much hoping to maybe at the next World Sepsis Congress um, we'll be able to, that I will be able to report on especially one of our exciting new projects with, which will run over the next five years in uh, sub-Saharan Africa and will evaluate the role of telemedicine for capacity building around sepsis in, in these countries. Thank you. Thank you very much, Wiltrud. We'll have to meet soon. Gladly. <laughs> okay. So next speaker will be Louise Twaits. Uh, Louise is a researcher and member of the Emerging Infections Group at Cuckoo. I didn't have time to look up where Cuckoo is located. Perhaps you can do that. Uh, tell us in, in your introduction. Um, now she is an associate <coughs> professor in the Center of Tropical Medicine Global Health at the University of Oxford. She's very much interested in various diseases. Uh, also, tetanus apparently is is one of the uh, one of your focus in in research. You have um, a role in a vital project. It's called Vital, which involves developing new devices, technologies for the use of diagnosis, treatment, and rehabilitation following diseases such as tetanus sepsis and dengue fever. You are a consultant of the World Health Organization, a member of the Critical Care Asia Network and many other things. And Luisa, the floor or the screen is yours. Thank you very much. And uh, hello to everybody wherever you are in the world. Yeah, I'll just give you a tiny bit about my background that wasn't mentioned there in that I'm working at the Oxford University Clinical Research Unit Oh, that is uh, Yeah, that's Oku. I, and that's I in thought that was, a, that was a town in Africa and Asia. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, it's got this very long name. That's why I we, we shorten it. But it, we're, we're based in Ho Chi Minh City, um, but actually work in, in Hanoi in the north of Vietnam, mm -hmm. as well as Nepal and Indonesia. And I so see. I guess that's why I'm here today, just giving some perspectives really from my point of view, mainly as a clinical researcher um, in, in that area and in a lower resource setting. Um, John has really described the challenges we have day to day in managing patients with sepsis in these kind of settings. So I thought I'd just offer some reflections really about what went well in COVID and, and what we could learn from that. Um, so I think what I noticed in COVID was COVID was seen as a, a national problem that had to be dealt with by everybody. Uh, Valina mentioned as well that other, other bits of government suddenly became interested um, in COVID. Um, and that did involve finance areas. Um, and it was a really nice coordinated response. And I think if, if we're looking at improving outcomes from sepsis, then that's absolutely vital. So in Vietnam, there was some really clear, widespread public health messaging that was really good. Um, treatment for, for medical, uh, for COVID in, in hospitals was free. Um, 
It's been mentioned throughout this Congress, the importance of increasing universal healthcare coverage, and Bernadette's mentioned that at the beginning of this session. And I think, yeah, bringing that towards sepsis care is really, really important if we can do that. Um, prevention and vaccination is important. Um, there was a talk earlier today, I don't know if, if you saw it, um, improving outcomes from AMR by improving vaccination coverage. I'm interested in tetanus, but there's a lot of vaccine preventable diseases that cause patients to be hospitalized um, and given antibiotics, which are usually unnecessary. And and there were some incredible advances in vaccination programs that happened and, and very innovative approaches to vaccination in many, many countries. And I think if we can incorporate those going forward, that would be a huge advance for sepsis. Um, and then finally, in that kind of high level health informatics and, and systems there, again mentioned um, by, by Bernadetta earlier, um, we had excellent data in COVID. Uh, we knew how many cases there were. We knew how many they were hospitalized. And yet I know as part of our Asia Pacific Sepsis Alliance work that we're finding it really hard to, to, to say how many cases of sepsis there are in the region. Um, there's a global health burden data, which, which has been shown throughout this Congress, but, but we are aware of limitations. So, so getting really good data and, and keeping those systems going for sepsis would be really helpful, I think. And then from a clinical trials perspective, that, that's what I do day to day. We saw some amazing partnerships existing, um, producing evidence rapidly, but pragmatic studies um, that could quickly be translated into general guidelines and day-to-day -day practice, I think was excellent. WHO did a great job coordinating that and their rapid evidence um, program, their living guidelines program is really useful for many lower resource settings, but also high resource settings. And, and you know, keeping those partnerships going, I think would be really helpful. But I know that's difficult. How do, how do we do that? Can we use these platforms to do other studies um, for diseases that are important? You know, we've been discussing doing it for dengue uh, in our region because dengue has been a huge problem in South and Southeast Asia this year. But, but keeping those partnerships and that infrastructure alive, not just for pandemic, but really to, to look at sepsis more generally, I think would be great. And then my final point is a kind of personal thing is that I is in in is long term outcomes from sepsis. I've been interested in rehabilitation and long term outcomes for a while, but but in most low resource settings, it's it's been very much ignored. That's partly because it 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 needs resources and the resources are already limited. But I think in in many lower resource settings now, the attention, you know, the realization that there is something called long COVID that people who've survived COVID may have other problems, um, has been really helpful for for us in sepsis because it means that we can start talking about sepsis in that in that way as well. So, I'll, hopefully, I'm within my my time ish, um, and I'll end there. Thank you. Thank you. Louise. Next and last speaker uh, during the panel will be uh, uh, John Marshall. <clears throat> John is from uh, the Department of Surgery at the University of Tor Toronto, St. Michael's Hospital. Um, he's going to show some slides. I was standing when the screen uh, changed. 
he is interested in you know in intensive uh, medicine of course intensive care unit sepsis trauma innate immune response and um, everything involved there has, has been done a lot on clinical trials and is a member of uh, a number of organizations founding chair of the international forum of acute care trialists council of the world federation of societies of intensive care and critical care medicine executive committee of the international severe acute respiratory infections consortium and many others john uh, you are an experienced doctor and we are looking forward to your talk Thank, uh, thanks so much and uh, greetings from uh, Canada. Hello, everyone. I wanted to make three points about uh, the uh, consequences of the pandemic for clinical research. And this is going to follow on from uh, the great talk that uh, Luis just gave. Uh, and these three points are these. First of all, we've learned over the last three years that it's possible to collaborate at grand scale uh, in response to an emergency, and that in doing so, we can identify effective and ineffective treatments very, very rapidly. Uh, it, during the pandemic, close to 9,000 trials have been registered uh, at clinicaltrials.gov. Over 100 different countries have uh, launched clinical trials of COVID-19. And these large uh, consortia of clinical trials have recruited tens of thousands of patients with COVID-19 and really for the first time shown that targeting the host response in an infectious disease can save lives. That's really been the holy grail of uh, sepsis research. Second, we've identified novel models of clinical trial design and in particular, uh, the platform trial uh, which allows us to study a disease rather than a single intervention and therefore is infinitely more efficient uh, in its capacity to generate new knowledge. Uh, platform trials also offer the uh, opportunity for patients to be preferentially randomized to interventions that seem to be doing better. And so platform trials really uh, in the future hold the promise of merging uh, research with quality improvement uh, and uh, benefiting patients in the process of understanding diseases. And then finally, I think probably the most important lesson going forward is that much as we've accomplished some uh, things that just have never been accomplished before by the global research community, it's also revealed the fault lines in that uh, endeavor. Uh, and even if you look at the poster child for uh, research during COVID-19, the NIHR in the United Kingdom, uh, it has been uh, noted that only a small percentage of hospitalized patients were actually recruited to trials uh, in COVID-19. In Canada, we recruited only 2.4% of ICU patients to the REMAP-CAP trial. And so perhaps the most enduring lesson of the pandemic is how much better we can do in the future uh, if we learn to work together and to uh, leverage some of the knowledge that uh, we've gained during the pandemic. So I think the pandemic has really opened a door, given us a glimpse of what how we can change uh, the clinical trial enterprise in the future and how we can better integrate uh, clinical research with the processes of care. Thanks very much. Okay, thank you, John. Now, um, we have many uh, listeners, as I mentioned, all of them send their regards, <laughs> especially John from Cape Town. You seem to be extremely popular there. <laughs> there are several special greetings for you. Uh, there are uh, there's one comment 
and one one related suggestion, and that is how to choose antibiotics. And then uh, there is a uh, let me see where that is. There's so many uh, comment. Laboratory management is very important. In particular, the recently validated UCAST rapid antibiotic resistance test can be economically used in many laboratories in the antibiotic management of sepsis. Uh, so perhaps you can, uh, one of you, uh, and if, uh, raise your hand or just, just start talking. How to choose an antibiotic was the question. And then is anybody of you knowing the UCAST rapid test for uh, the uh, diagnostic of, of sepsis? How to choose an antibiotic? I'll kick it off if you want. I mean, I think the selection of antibiotics is very much dependent on two factors, the likely infecting organism, uh, which can often be estimated from the clinical presentation and the resistance uh, profile in the area that you're treating the patient. So I think it's hard to generalize um, the choice of an antibiotic for sepsis because sepsis is caused by such a diverse variety of microorganisms. But I think, think about what the likely pathogen is and the resistance profile in the area that you are. What, what the, uh, my, my question would be what a resistance profile and antibiogram and, and all that be feasible in all low income and low resources countries or, or uh, how is the situation there? John, you probably, John uh, Adabi, you probably, yes, you have raised your hand already. There Thank you, you very much yeah, for the question. Yeah, um, choosing antibiotics to manage patients in resource-limited settings very difficult, many places. It's, it's, it's not um, availability of um, cultures to identify even organisms to treat, availability of identifying resistance pattern it's 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 a whole different ball game on it's on in many places in the continent and i agree with everything john said i'm not familiar with the ucas system but it's all also boils down to making it available if if it's that simple making it available to resource limited settings and that the clinician at the primary care level the healthcare worker at the primary care health uh, level. How accessible is this available to, to, to such a, a person to manage patients? If we look at malaria, for instance, in many places, we have narrowed, we have one uh, antimicrobial or two antimicrobials that we have recommended to be used, looking at the uh, resistance pattern across the, uh, across the country. This is not the case with sepsis where we see variable organisms causing it from viruses, uh, parasites, and then uh, bacteria, and even tuberculosis and so on and so forth. So it's, it's, a, it's a huge challenge. And this is where, uh, again, coming in just like we have discussed, how can we tap into the pandemic, uh, uh, our response to the pandemic, how we work together to be able to generate our ability to identify uh, COVID early, to implement uh, uh, lateral flu tests that can help you identify. So these, these are challenges that we face in the resource-limited sense. And to be able to do this, we definitely need to move in that direction. And here, 
just like John said, we need a leader. We need leaders. John and Louis said we need leaders. Uh, we need WHO to come in and provide that leadership. If you look at uh, uh, resource limited settings or low middle income countries, we tend to rely on guidelines and recommendations from WHO. This is what our national governments understand. Our policymakers rely on. So if, if there is a guide, there's guidelines from WHO, from our recognized bodies, it makes it easier for us to work with and individual recommendations uh, from different organizations. Thank you. So that is a real dilemma. I mean, if you don't have the proper diagnosis and specific diagnosis, then you, can, you cannot use a specific antibiotic this, of course, then leads to everything afterwards, which we are confronted with, uh, creating resistance and all that kind of thing. So, uh, um, you know, the textbook is, is good and fine. <laughs> In practice, uh, it's so difficult. Benetta, um, WHO is the solution of everything. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> Thank you. I wish it was true that we are such a superpower. Um, so I just wanted to mention a couple of, of, of points from my perspective. Uh, the first one is really vis-a-vis uh, -vis to the question how you uh, select antibiotics. I would like to say that, in my opinion, there is another question to be asked, in, which is whether an antibiotic or an antimicrobial is needed, uh, because of course. Uh, we are talking about, about patients with sepsis. Of course, these are very critical patients. So it's clear that in many cases, an antibiotic will be needed, but not always. And uh, this is why having knowledge about the most likely pathogens uh, according to the age, according to the type of patient and to the type of infection is critical. So this, this was the first comment I wanted to make. Then as a follow-up of uh, uh, John Marshall's point and, and also uh, John Pierre as well about uh, the challenges to make the diagnosis, the etiology diagnosis in the middle income countries. As you know, WHO since many years has promoted GLASS and has promoted really uh, the concept of strengthening uh, laboratory-based uh, um, pathogen detection, including quality and including AMR patterns. Um, there have been major progresses over years uh, in the coverage of, of, of this network, of this uh, approach. Uh, but of course, uh, we are far from having all countries uh, on board with GLASS. What I would like to say, though, is that low-middle-income countries, including African countries' numbers of participation in, in GLASS has increased over time. And so it means that uh, thanks to many efforts by many stakeholders, certainly not only WHO, but donors, many stakeholders, uh, this is improving. Uh, in my opinion, one critical point to make this work 
is dissemination of data and use of data. Uh, because, um, in my opinion, even in high income countries, and I'm thinking of, you know, the huge, uh, data availability exists in Europe, for example, thanks to the European CDC. Still, I'm not sure that even in high income countries, the data that are available are used properly. And when I'm thinking of an African country, if this African country is part of GLASS, which means that there is at least one reference lab in the country, uh, collecting data, having data on the principal patterns of antimicrobial resistance, for example, in key pathogens. Are these data disseminated to the most important hospitals in the country? Because still, if this, these hospitals don't have lab capacity, but if they knew at least the most prevalent pathogens and their uh, antimicrobial resistance patterns in one reference hospital, this would be a starting point, I believe. So it's not only about capacity, which is lacking, but it's also about how you use the data, how the ministry is able to disseminate the data and help uh, healthcare provi providers to interpret the data and use them. So uh, these are the main comments I wanted to make on this topic. And I, I think uh, this discussion is really very important. Okay. Um, Elina, you want to add something? Yes, I think I raised my hand for something else, and uh, there were so many interesting things mentioned. So I'll okay, go ahead. I'll try to thank, thank you, thank you, Detlef. But I'll try. I'll try to I don't know structure my thoughts here because there were so many important things. I'm approaching it a bit from not so much from a clinical perspective. How should we prescribe antibiotics? But rather from the sort of public health system perspective. Um, I'll I'll say this: we have at EU level. Um, guidelines on the prudent use of antimicrobials. What we don't have at EU level, at least not EU guidelines, is on uh, treatment guidelines for specific uh, major syndromes or major diseases. There is thinking to, to go into that direction in case that would be helpful. But we also notice another phenomenon that despite the guidelines, there is sometimes lack of adherence to the guidelines. And this is, I think, what Benedetta mentioned just now, very important, this feedback loop back to the prescribers, back to the doctors, and the labs play a very important role there. Microbiologists, all of, you know, all of the players in the whole system, uh, about their prescription practices, that is not taking place, maybe in some EU member states, but not everywhere. I'm talking about the EU. I can only imagine what could be in other parts of the world. So um, guidelines is one thing. The other thing, education of healthcare professionals, continuous education, because these pathogens, they change. Resistance appears all the time. And it's perhaps, especially for primary care pro um, professionals like GPs, I don't know how often they get to refresh their um, you know, knowledge about antimicrobial resistance, how much time they may have. And another point that was mentioned, rapid diagnostics. I think that is... That is key, and we keep talking about this and, and funding research about this under 
the EU um, uh, research programs. And then there's a, the other side of the coin are those diagnostics reimbursed by national healthcare systems. If they aren't, then the doctors are not going to use them. Uh, but it's important to to push somebody. I think Louise mentioned vaccination in terms of prevention. I mean, when I look at the major pathogens that we know are resist, showing resistance, and I'm guessing are also contributing to sepsis in the EU, we are talking E. coli, Klebsiella, uh, MRSA. We don't have uh, vaccines against these. So um, it would be, you know, I, if, if I would have to put, you know, a list of hope, you know, top vaccines that we hope could be developed, I would put these. We know that the burden of uh, AMR in the EU is bigger than the burden of influenza, TB and HIV combined. So why wouldn't we invest in this? Uh, at the same time, the burden of healthcare associated infection is even higher in the EU. Um, uh, uh, the AMR is estimated at at, at least 35,000 deaths per year and growing. And uh, healthcare associated infection, uh, you know, which include things like... Uh, bloodstream infections, but also pneumonia, urinary tract infection, over 9 million per year. So um, so all of these elements, I'm looking at them from the perspective of prevention, preparedness, and response to these bigger, bigger threats. So um, these are my, my thoughts at the moment. Thank you. Okay, thank you. I have a couple of questions here, and one is from Laura from Argentina. Great presentations. Thank you very much. My question is whether the platform trial concept could be used to study post-sepsis syndrome. In the meantime, while you think about it, there's also a message that the UCAST uh, trial, which I mentioned in one of the other questions, is not available in low- and middle-income countries. But there seems to be another cheaper test available. So uh, the question from Argentina. Uh, Louise. Hi, thanks. Um, I'm sure there's a few people want to want to comment on this. Uh, I'm sure John will too. Um, my, I'm very much in favour of collaborative trials, so I'd like to say yes to start off with. Why not? Um, I think it would be really valuable to have more more data on this and to look at interventions that might help with that. Um, I think a practical thing, if we're thinking about these global trials, um, I speak as, as someone who's, who's participating in the recovery trial, is that in lower resource settings, getting that long-term data after patients leave hospital is much, much harder. And that's probably partly why these things have been ignored in the past. But with recovery, we are managing at least to telephone patients after they've been discharged and get some of these longer-term outcomes. Um, so yes, why not? And um, I think you know, getting involved with the collaborations and, and the groups and, and looking at these interventions would be really something that we should be doing in the future. Okay, John. Uh, I completely agree with uh, Louise's comments. Definitely, yes, it can be applied. Uh, the differentiating factor with platform trials is not so much the trial itself, it's in the initial design 
uh, of the trial and how you focus on a disease and how you make decisions about randomization. So once the trial is going, it's very much just like a conventional clinical trial. The challenges obviously are implementing a trial in the uh, ambulatory setting, the post-hospital setting, but that's being done actually now with several platform trials and it's work seems to be working out quite well. So I do think that this is a model of research that has tremendous uh, possibilities associated with it because of the fact that it's much more readily integrated into clinical practice. Uh, we, for example, in RemapCap are using registries to randomize patients to uh, the trial uh, in Southeast Asia. And so that uh, is another opportunity that arises there. So an enthusiastic yes. Okay, thank you. <clears throat> There's a question. We have most antibiotic resistance for the latest antibiotics. How to tackle this problem? you have an answer? Or do we need somebody from the pharmaceutical industry to give an answer? Perhaps I can, I'm a pharmacologist by training. Or Belina, you want to answer? I can, I can say that, uh, you know, from my, my experience with the pharmaceutical industry, uh, of course, uh, developing antibiotics is not an easy task. And uh, to develop very specific antibiotics for very specific diseases and be sure that they have a sufficient spectrum for the cases occurring is, is a big problem. And, and many companies resign from, uh, you know, this, this research, which is a real big, big problem. And, and one of the answers should be, of course, that good antibiotics and, and good, good diagnostic is being done so that you can use selectively those existing antibiotics which work. You know, and if you go with broad spectrum antibiotics, then of course you, you create resistance and, and then, uh, uh, you know, it's a never ending story. So I think this uh, indicates a real problem between proper treatment, specific treatment and providing new antibiotics. And of course, the bacteria and all the infectious uh, agents, they mutate relatively fast. So <laughs> there are new organisms coming up all the time. So, uh, yes, Melina, the mean, European I mean, Commission has a, has a solution. Has a plan, yes. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, you're absolutely right. This is the, the I would say, not the million-dollar question, it's the billion-dollar question. How do we get a new class of antibiotics which could indeed cost um, an enormous amount of money in terms of uh, um, research and then clinical trials? And that hasn't happened in the last 30 years, to my knowledge. A new class. We have had new antibiotics, but they're essentially tweaking the old ones and trying to, you know, outpace the, the issue, which is the antimicrobial resistance. Uh, we are, as what I just mentioned today, we are unveiling a um, revision of the EU pharmaceutical legislation, and we are proposing some mechanisms of how this could be done. Uh, through transferable exclusivity vouchers. I'm not going to um, go in depth exactly what that is. You can you can look it up. And, and uh, thinking of other methods, there are different schemes that are also being developed globally in, uh, in other parts of the world as well to look how we can overcome this problem. I would just basically say, indeed, the other side of the coin so that we don't end up with new antibiotic that is very costly and only, I don't know, five, ten years down the line go back to square one with resistance, 
the other side of the coin is what you said, Detlef, uh, that uh, absolutely prudent use. Once we have it on out there, it will have to be used extremely sparingly and only for very dire and serious cases. Otherwise, we run the risk to be back, as I said, back to square one. Thank you. Can I ask you a question, uh, which may be out of place, but you are the specialist. I've been the founder of the Max Delbrück Center for Molecular Medicine here in Berlin. And Max Delbrück has developed phage, phage genetics. Uh, you know, these, uh, you, and, and these phages are now being used and can be very specific for specific bacteria, especially. So is, is the treatment of infections with phages, I know it's being done, but is, has this penetrated already school medicine and clinical practice? Built good at the Charité. I mean, in Berlin, they should be, uh, they should uh, be, follow, should be. follow the uh, ideas of Max Delbrück, who was a Berliner. Definitely, definitely. But, you know, as you know, implementation of research into practice takes a long time, um, much too long time. Um, we, we are not doing that at the moment. We are still, um, even in trial settings, are still busy with, you know, um, other aspects um, at the moment. Um, and, and so far, it hasn't reached our intensive care. Anybody else on the panel who knows about it, the progress there? My information is that in Eastern European countries, it's, it's uh, being done, but I have no information how well it's being done. Okay. Um. <clears throat> um, Detlef, maybe I can only compliment on this. This is one of the fast therapies, one option for what we call alternatives to antibiotics. And it is something that we would like to look into, if I'm not wrong, under our research program. Yes, to my knowledge, it's it's more in the area of research at the moment. I'm not sure how much it, it is in clinical practice in, in the EU, but um, this is one option and many others as well, um, uh, as well as prevention, what I mentioned, vaccination. Um, and looking a little bit more into the question of the transmission sorry uh, transmission of resistance and how resistance especially in the environment how it develops because we seem to of course all have this understanding that uh, the main driver of resistance is overuse of antibiotics but there are signals I'll mention one uh, about the uh, role of antidepressants on the development of resistance which is uh, perhaps I don't know how many are familiar with this um, so and then, as I said, the environment, I think, is well recognized as a, a bit an underexplored area. We don't know exactly what happens there. We tend to have more information on uh, humans and animals and the link between humans and animals. But the whole One Health spectrum needs to be even more looked at. Thank you. And there is another comment here, which uh, relates to what we have been discussing, and that is antibiotic results are available after 48 hours in conventional routine laboratories. Microorganism diagnosis can be made quickly with new generation sequencing systems and rapid diagnosis methods, but it is not cost effective. However, the most common microorganism in blood samples will be produced 
by R-A-S-T, I don't know what that means, which can be of great, oh, rapid, rapid sequencing probably, which can be of great benefit to the clinic, thanks. So uh, rapid sequencing of the uh, microorganism, is that uh, something which uh, probably not available in, in uh, low resources countries, but is, is it being done uh, frequently? Perhaps I'll just uh, perhaps offer a comment because because I work in quite a unique environment where where we can do some of these we do a lot of these you know really um, innovative uh, diagnostics and tests but in the context of a low resource setting um, and we often get asked why are you doing that because that's not affordable um, mm. for for routine use in hospitals and and the answer really is. Well, firstly, it might not be now, but it certainly could become so as the technologies evolve. Um, but also, I think what we do try and do alongside it is the health economics of, of, of uh, why we're doing it. So, yes, the test is expensive, but actually antibiotics in our setting are very expensive because we nearly always need to use carbapenems, which are very expensive. Um, the costs of prolonged hospitalization are, you know, are high. And of course, our patients are often paying out of pocket themselves. Um, there's often very high indirect medical costs for, for the patients involved. So I think there is a rationale for doing these within reason in, in a lot of settings. And I think accompanying by good health economy and really understanding the impact beyond just quickly getting a result is really important. Mm -hmm. Okay, so our, our colleague from uh, somewhere in the world is just telling us that the RAS is the abbreviation, as we mentioned, Rapid Antibiotic Test Systems. Okay, John. Thank you very much. I would like, like to dovetail onto what uh, Louise just uh, highlighted. And in fact, it's very important to uh, realize that on the face value, if we look at the investigation identifying uh, pathogens to treat, looks like it's more it's expensive. But if we, in my practice, uh, it's much more cheaper than really getting down to identify the organism that you are treating. And, and I see that frequently where in practice we chop and change antibiotics more frequently without really identifying what, knowing what we are treating. Uh, I can cite examples upon examples, some medication that's quite expensive. I end expect we just do that and eventually get to the point where these expensive drugs are also not working then what do we do? That's when we take a step back. But if you are taking the step to do the right proper investigation, it would have been much more cheaper in that context than uh, assuming that all uh, initial attempts to identify the organism and treat appropriately actually is, 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 is the headache. No, it is not. We need to take that step and then moving forward. The other thing also I want to talk about the antibiotic uh, uh, use is uh, um, um, antibiotic stewardship. We need to take that very seriously uh, in, in, in our practice. Uh, without that, uh, we are going to add to what the rest have spoken about. And uh, it's we are part of the problem. 
we need to understand when to initiate, when to change, when to stop, and be confident enough to be able to say, this is not helping, let me stop it at the right time. Thank you. Um, then there's another question. Many low- and middle-income countries are involved with global PPS and WHO PPS to obtain data that helps in driving for AMR response through AMS implementation. Benedetta, you have an answer to this? Uh, uh, well, I'm not sure it's a question. Is it a question about which countries or a comment, are... Or, uh, comment, the comment? Well, uh, uh, the, the, the colleague who made this comment was mentioning uh, the fact that WHO is currently proposing a point prevalence study about antimicrobial resistance in countries, which would be really important to gather more data on the global perspective and also regional perspective of antimicrobial resistance of some uh, key pathogens which are considered priority. So uh, thank you for mentioning that. It's a great opportunity for me to actually encourage any country to participate. This would be very useful uh, for the world uh, and for your own country. I also wanted to mention uh, another point which I forgot earlier. Um, WHO uh, issued a few years ago a very useful toolkit for antimicrobial stewardship in low resource settings. So uh, that is really uh, something that is adapted uh, to the challenges that are experienced in, in low resource settings uh, in order to develop uh, antimicrobial stewardship uh, guidance and, and implement it. Um, it's also based on, on multidisciplinary approaches and has suggestions for additional tools to be used. So I encourage you to look for this document uh, in the it's a manual for antimicrobial stewardship uh, for low resource settings. Okay, thank you very much. There's some discussion on acupuncture uh, before or after acupuncture. This hasn't been mentioned so far, you know, the, um, you know, perhaps infections of the uh, nervous system. Or would there be a comment on uh, when you use acupuncture and what, what kind of uh, diseases uh, are the most uh, relevant, perhaps in uh, low resources countries or, John? Um, is it usually blood samples? How, how frequent do you have infections? How frequent are the infections? And how frequently do you acupuncture in, in, uh, in sepsis? But that's, that's uh, the meaning of the question. Right. Um, either way, I don't, I don't have any experience in, in, this, um, in this area. I don't see patients who come in either having gone through acupuncture therapy and I've also not used acupuncture to treat any patient with sepsis. So I don't have any experience. We don't need to comment on this. I don't know if any other colleagues will. Okay. Then there's a comment in Africa, the resources for such sophisticated uh, diagnostics and, and machine 
in laboratory and laboratory investigations are limited and located only in the capital. Therefore, most sepsis cases are treated based on symptoms. That's uh, probably a, a statement uh, from the practice. And um, the, my question then would be to Vilina. You have uh, several billion, and you're proud of it, correctly so, a uh, uh, health program at the European Union. I'm sure this does, this money does not go to, uh, to Berlin or London or Oxford or, or Paris, but goes to uh, low resource countries, does it? No, this is actually the health program is for the EU um, actions, funding EU actions. I would just like to maybe stress that it is for all rela health related activities. So that includes funding our uh, cancer. Uh, Beating Cancer Plan as well, which is a major a part of it. This is for activities in the EU. For funding outside of the EU, this we have other instruments on that, and perhaps they're even bigger. I'm not uh, super familiar with them, I must admit, um, where we support the um, global health strategy of the of the European Union. So these are, depending on the countries of the world, there are different instruments. But the EU for Health is for the EU member states plus the associated countries, to my knowledge, that's Norway, um, Iceland, and Ukraine now. Uh, well, then this deserves a special comment from the moderator. It's, uh, it's common knowledge that most of the money from the rich countries really stays in the rich countries, even for global health activities, you know, training. And and uh, not enough money goes to to uh, low resource countries, but even and and this is a kind of uh, a suggestion for for Wiltrud, for, for many others. I mean, even if you develop new methodologies like telemedicine, which also is a training method, as you see, as you as you said, and and which is important. Of course, you can have. Uh, you know, partners all over the world, especially in telemedicine, and train them and get them involved in European pro programs, which many do. I mean, uh, this is not not a new invention, but it's not done sufficiently, probably, to really have uh, low and, low and middle income countries participate in the further development of of progress in medicine. So, my specific question would be to all of you, actually who are uh, relatively or completely spoiled and, and well-funded specialists, uh, how much uh, interaction is there between your laboratories and your, your colleagues with countries in low and middle income uh, of, of low resource? You first. You said you have a training program. Yeah, I can, yeah, I can maybe talk a little about the sustainment or the, the strategies for sustainability in the projects that we started. And as I said, um, the international corporations were started in, in the time of, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic and there was funding um, for these kinds of 
of um, uh, corporations. And yes, now with the situation has changed and uh, actually a lot of the, that funding has gone away um, uh, with the subsiding pandemic and the different situation in Europe and other uh, priorities also in Europe with the war in Ukraine. Um, and we're looking at now at the, at the challenge of sustaining these programs in the respective countries. And um, what what one of the solutions is, and this also is in connection with the point that um, there have been, you know, there's a lot of success in partnering um, internationally in these countries. But I think as a sustainability strategy, um, actually the local ownership of these programs and, you know, the local taking over of of the concept and the structures maybe even scaling it up in in their in the in their countries and in the regions as we're trying to do for example in the Balkan region or um, in central asia and uzbekistan is the way to go forward um and as for funding um yes that's difficult especially when you then go to a bigger network um, undertakings, like I just mentioned, in the region of Central Asia, um, that's that's yeah, that's where it starts. Where we have to look for sources, definitely. Thank you, um, Belina, and and well, colleagues, all of you. Um, this panel is not just for uh, teaching those who listen, but uh, in a good panel, the panelists also learn. And, and um, I think uh, it is important to, to really consider, and one of the learnings of this discussion, but this is not completely new, it has been said in many other discussions, uh, it is so important if we want to improve health around the world, especially infectious diseases, there it's very plausible because infectious diseases know no border, okay? Cancer is different. That's not infectious. But, but you know, viruses and bacteria cross borders, as, as we know. So uh, involving other countries in, in all these developments, uh, both technologically, but also with respect to training and, and, and uh, providing the facilities, you know, at the place where needed. I think is important, which we have to consider, and all of you are in, in important positions and being able to counsel grant givers and politics and whoever has to decide. I think that's, that's an important point. And I know from, you know, my own experience, um, once you do that, it's so rewarding. And the young people are, especially the young, you know, the old professors, uh, you know, kind of, Sit at their chair and, and, well, they do, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not qualifying that, but, but, uh, young people are especially idealistic and they're not bound to profession and daily duties and so on. And they like to do that. They like to go abroad and, and learn together and, and it's, it's learning on both sides. So I think this is a point for global health, which has to be, and, and I'm sure Benedetta, or your hand is up. Uh, that's, of course, the WHO cannot do that, but you can stimulate this type of attitude, collaboration between low and middle income countries and high income countries really have to collaborate, not just by training, but by, by providing facilities and then, uh, uh, kind of, um, get the ball rolling and, 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 uh, um, 
really uh, bring to global health uh, forward. Uh, Benedetta. Thanks a lot. Uh, of course, I think I agree more. And as we all know, uh, all, all our activity is oriented uh, towards low resource settings, and in particular, low middle income countries. In particular, related to, to this session and also what was the, the focus of my presentation, I really wanted to remind everyone that uh, there are strong data which we included also in our global report on sepsis uh, two years ago that show uh, that there is clearly a significantly higher sepsis frequency and mortality in low-income countries. And thinking of the focus of my presentation where I tried to uh, explain how much uh, integrated health systems uh, uh, are important to tackle sepsis, uh, we can also say that uh, data related to the health systems building blocks uh, uh, that are available uh, again highlight weaker and less integrated health systems and gaps uh, in essential health services and infection prevention and control programs in these countries. So there are very clear reasons for prioritizing these countries and settings. Uh, clear evidence which can be used also to convince, uh, to convince policymakers, to convince donors uh, to focus on this. However, uh, saying this is easy, working on this is more complex. And I think we need to approach this topic being humble and knowing that there is a lot to learn from these settings and that any proposal, any intervention we make in this direction must be adapted according to the local reality of these settings. And there are many lessons to be learned and research should be encouraged also uh, including uh, qualitative research to understand what are the barriers, what are the facilitating factors for implementation of solutions to prevent and manage sepsis in low middle income countries. Okay, thank you, Belina. Sorry, I know we're running out of time. Just wanted to clarify. You mentioned 5 billion for the EU for Health program. I found the other instrument. It's called Global Europe, and it's 79.5 billion euro. So it's a lot more, <laughs> and of which 29.8 billion for Sub-Saharan Africa. I just wanted to give you the figures to give you a okay. sense of what we're talking about here. Leave that us your phone number and we will call you up. <laughs> on, the, on the radar. Thank you. Okay, thank you. And uh, everybody listening has, <laughs> I think, with great pleasure has heard these figures. No, I think it's fantastic what Europe is doing in the health area, and this is, uh, has not been uh, so generous in the, fast, in the past. So uh, thank you very much, and uh, best regards to the Commission and, and the President. Indeed, the time is up, and I have one comment here. Thank you very much to the whole panel 
Hope you will come up with some solutions for low, low and middle income countries and especially for Africa. So I think this is almost a very nice conclusion. And I uh, indeed thank you very much. I learned a lot and I think it was a very lively discussion. I'm very happy that we had so many questions from outside and confident answers. We have not solved all the problems, antimicrobial resistance and, and uh, sepsis remains a big problem, diagnostics and treatment. So it was uh, very good that we had this international symposium. Thank you to all the sponsors and thank you to those who organized the meeting. And I wish you, I can't wish you safe return home, but go back to work would be my, but uh, it's very important and wonderful work and uh, try to be as effective as you have been in the past and try to improve global health together. Thank you very much and uh, hope to see you in person soon somewhere. Bill Schwood, we will meet uh, this afternoon. <laughs> Thank you very much, everybody. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. Session 9 is already in the feed, and sessions 11 and 12 will follow next Tuesday on June 6th. See you next week.